2: I'm your humble host, Amrish Sandhu, and you're tuning in to a conscious conversation designed to help you grow. Our mission here is simple. It's for you to live your purpose, live your best life, live the life you love. This podcast is sponsored by Enthusiasm for Life, by great creation itself. To keep the good vibes flowing for myself and yourself, do us a solid. Subscribe to the Inspired Evolution podcast on YouTube the home of the inspired evolution podcast now sit back relax open your mind open your heart to this conversation and stay inspired keep evolving welcome to the inspired evolution and it is just like an absolute treat to be here again we Get have me every us. time
0: with the goddamn scream every yeah. time
2: <laughs> every <laughs> goddamn scream i'm just saying <laughs>
0: I'm
2: totally chill. I'm all fine. The whole whole idea here was to just disrupt Stephen Kotler's zen, which he's been cultivating through having written so many award-winning books. It is actually insane. But nonetheless, even as a best-selling author and award-winning journalist, this amazing new book that he's written, I have really enjoyed because I really enjoyed Last Tango in Cyberspace. And just, yeah, the, the foray into the, um, the fiction, and just the ability that it gives Stephen a license to actually try and bring the future up close and personal to us has been a real, real treat. So yeah, the new book has been an absolute treat and I'm excited to dive deeper into that today. Um, but really, Stephen's greatest passion is human potential and just what's possible in that space. And uh, these books look at that in a real, yeah, creative, creative way. He's also uh, Flow Research Collective Executive Director and doing all the bad stuff around there. Um, really awesome to have you here, Stephen. Thank you so much for doing this with us today. Oh, my pleasure. It's good to see you again. Oh, bro. So where do we even begin on such a massive book? I guess the place where I wanted to start was this concept which is uh, underlying the theme of the whole thing, speciesism, bro. Because last time we talked about Last Angle in Cyberspace, we walked away and uh, I noticed Empathy for All was this massive sort of war cry that came out of the book. And uh, so much so that we named the last episode, not Last Tango in Cyberspace and that was based on that book. We called the episode Empathy for All because it was just this, man, what a, like, it's just such a beautiful concept on all levels, spiritual, emotional, intellectual, like it really is like a panacea almost for our time. But this new book goes into a new direction where there are, there is basically speciesism, like we talk about racism and that's a massive issue I know in, uh, especially in the States. Um, but also here in Australia, in the West. Um, But then I found just it really interesting looking into the future where yeah, we're eroding species and we're finding ourselves in a conversation where there are people that are pro human and pro human excellence and how that comes potentially even at a cost for the perspective of others at the price of Pachamama and mother earth. That was quite a rub to sort of sit with between the whole, um, the whole book your intentions around exploring some of that and it's what you felt going into
0: that, bro? You sort of nailed it. I mean, like, in, 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 mm-hmm. so we back into your question uh, slightly, which is one of the goals in Last Hang On Devils, in The Devil's Addiction, the new one, was to create a world, right? Our world, 15 years, 20 years in the future, where the major environmental challenges species die off, climate change, et cetera, had been solved, but I Mm -hmm. did not want a perfect utopia. I wanted our world with those things really solved. So what would it take? What kind of changes culturally, technologically, individually, psychologically, emotionally, Mm -hmm. all that stuff? And that was the question I was asking. I thought that was the sort of adult way to treat, you know, to treat these, these kinds of concepts. And Mm -hmm. The one of the reasons I really wanted to do that is I know, I sort of feel like, as an environmentalist who and who's been like covering as a writer, as a reporter, as you know, running environmental organizations for thirty years now, and doing animal rights work and all this stuff on the front lines for so long. Um, discussions about like is climate change real and like how to all oh, like, <laughs> I mean like what. Right? Yeah. And, and, and like I like, okay, you can go have those conversations.
2: You'd love well, to have your right?
0: yeah. But What I wanted to really talk about was like, holy crap, if we do solve these problems, mm. what we're gonna have the changes we're gonna have to go through as individuals are gonna create whole new levels of problems which is what you were looking at like the ride and speciation you know the this is not a new idea you go back into sort of the writings of like animal rights folks and animal behavior experts in the 1970s 80s and 90s there's a ton of stuff where they talk about the bible says dominion over the beasts and you know mm. speciation and i and I will tell you oddly oddly I'll give you one random example so um, where this sort of shows up, still shows up in really, really odd ways. When my mm-hmm. wife and I ran Rancho de Chihuahua in Chimayo, New Mexico, we, you know, yep. we built our dog sanctuary. Uh, we built it. We wanted to do all the stuff nobody wanted to do. And we wanted to work on the front lines in mm-hmm. a very rural, very poor community with the highest instance of animal cruelty. And it's a very Catholic community. And oh. as we were working there, people would get very angry with us. They would say, why are you helping dogs? You should be helping children. Dogs don't have souls. They don't matter. You should be helping kids. Kids need your help. And they would get mad at us. So like, you think this is, the speciation is this like weird idea that like doesn't show up. And here I put it. Right. It was was in our face for like 10 years when we were in that community doing this work, Mm -hmm. people would routinely yell at us for not working with humans. So we saw that um mm. on, on one level but i really you know if you start empathy for all which is still the core idea here mm. is you know empathy for all humans of course but for plants animals and ecosystems and in the yes. sense we're talking about equal rights for plants animals and ecosystems we're starting yeah. to have that conversation it's right that's the conversation, conversation started, man. i love and, it and, and and you could make i mean you can make really interesting arguments all the, all the way across for it against it doesn't matter. But what you certainly know is if we were to start acting on it at a global level, there'd be a huge outcry. There'd be a bunch of people who were like, what the fuck? You're helping plants, animals, and ecosystems. And humans are still dying. Like what, Mm -hmm. right. That would absolutely happen. There'd be a humans first movement, which is all Mm -hmm. I did in the book is I created a humans first movement. And then I created an empathy for all movement. And um, you know, it, It mirrors, you know, people have pointed out that it mirrors the tribalism of our times or whatever. And I don't, what I think it mirrors, and this is what I talked about in Last Tango a little bit, and this is what seems to get left out a little bit of some of the like implicit bias discussions and things like that, Mm. is that. We don't have implicit biases we have an us them detector built into the brain that's what the brain does because you talk about this in the book this is just versus them yeah no it's just it's it's foundational neuroscience so you've got to like understand that like whenever an organism meets another organism right Uh the first thing it's got to ask is are you like me or are you not like me because if you're like me i may want to mate with you or befriend <laughs> you we go hunt for together or something like that. And if you're not like me, you might be my dinner or I might be your dinner, yours? Right? right? And the like me, not like me is the first thing the human brain, as soon as we detect motion, which yeah. is signal that something is alive, the next yeah. question we ask is, is the thing that's moving like me or not like me? And everything else that we talk about is built out of that. So when they talk about people reacting instinctively to, to people who are not the same color of their skin, yes. But it has nothing to do with the color of your skin. It has to do with like me or not like me. Like and yeah. and more, here's the cool part. Where, yeah. So there's like me and not like me, but how does the brain determine like me or not like me also? Mm. Empathy is what determines it. You have something called the sphere of caring. Psychologists call it your sphere of caring, right? How wide do you care? Most people, it's their friends, their families, their loved ones. Maybe their pets goes out. Maybe it's their people in their hometown. Maybe it's their country, yep. their religion, whatever. Right? That's your sphere of caring. Levels of compassion. When you're yep. outside the sphere of caring, the brain literally like shuts off perception. You don't get as much information. Like if you're inside my sphere of caring, you know what I mean. If you're a dog that I care about, um, so you get that information. You don't get that information too.
2: Yeah. Uh,
0: so it has a, it has a perceptual impact, but all that stuff stems from how wide is our sphere of caring and how wide is sphere of caring is determined by how much empathy we feel. We feel empathy for all our sphere of caring widens out and that us them divide goes away
2: yeah because i that was going to be one of the big questions that i asked you from the book because i was still wrapping my head around this us them versus them versus them concept which is peppered throughout the book quite consistently but actually wrapping my head and grounding into what is that really articulating towards and it's it's almost what i'm hearing is a bias towards likeness but it's not even a bias because a bias makes it sound like it's much more prefrontal likeness, cortex yeah. but like it's like a safety mechanism in your system say, right? you know, it's, no, it's way a, it's more a, like we're talking a, amygdala yeah. almost right no
0: it is i mean you're, you're you're it's all this happens at by the i mean at the amygdala but no higher like that's mm. the top of where this information is yeah. processed. Interesting. you're talking about really primitive patterns early on in the pattern protection system you know stuff that is going to get recognize i mean you know some of this stuff can get triggered odor doesn't even pass though so i don't know if you know this but right the brain the thalamus is the router for the brain right all information comes in our senses goes to the thalamus the brain except goes elsewhere for processing except for smells which go right to the amygdala basically like they go they're high and there's just so much information like we're talking about this us them stuff like if Mm -hmm. they don't have the right pheromones the them detector goes off and it's, it not, happening. Like, it's, <laughs> it's so not happening. It's so pre conscious.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. And I, I find it interesting because in this space, the way you've unpacked this, it becomes really an opportunity for us to witness, even well, just for me, I should probably speak for myself, my own judgments that arise of others when they're and of their behaviors. When, you know, you really start to see the fine line between, okay, how much of this is your, I need a better word around it but genetic makeup how much of this is your amygdala and how much of this is your prefrontal cortex decision making because it almost feels for me if you've made a decision based on what you've constructed as your model of reality and there is potential for it to be a bit more enlightened some part of me as much as I'd like to be a spiritual being <laughs> finds myself judging you for some other decision we talked about climate change it's like that's not a thing it's like oh. Oh, man. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? And But some of the more fundamental stuff that happens in the core of you, I'm easier accepting of other people because it's like, well, that's just the makeup of who they are. And it's interesting sort of seeing where we're making our decisions from and how others can accept us based on there are some things that as human beings are innate to our biases, but there are certain biases which are then developed culturally. And I think the whole tracker concept, is, again, a massive one when it comes to culture in this book. I love the fact that this dude just tunes it to culture. Um, There's a whole thing about his name line, which we'll talk about shortly. But one of the things that really stood out for me in this, which I forgot to sort of, I guess, I missed in the last book, was the fact that Amtrak is developed um, generally from a trauma-afflicted incident. So normally what happens is there's like a trauma-inflicted incident and then like something cracks them open. And then they develop these extra, I want to call them extra sensory but that may or may not be the right word, um, abilities. Now, I found that quite, uh, I want to say poetic, but quite, I don't want to say harrowing either, but quite poignant is probably the right word. When I look at um, some of the work of like what uh, Dr. Gabor Mate talks about as well and going through like these challenges with trauma, and how that actually opens up people in newer ways, and trying to find kind of the blessings that are available to you through those challenges. It seems like, and like an am tracker is a superhuman version of that. Is there like the, the 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 combination between cracking open trauma and then healing that into something that is more of use to, I guess, more egalitarian, more empathy for all sort of concepts? Part it's, of the it's, it's, it's,
0: it's interesting. interesting. I um. <sighs> Um, the way I thought of it and you you sort of got there uh, so there's one I thought of M-Trackers right like my protagonist is an M-Tracker and for those of you who are listening and didn't see the first episode um There, It's a genetic mutation that produces a wildly expanded sense of empathy. So my Mm. protagonist not only feels for all humans, feels empathy for all humans, but he also feels empathy for plants, animals, and ecosystems, what we were Mm. talking about earlier. What uh, psychologists or scientists talk about is nature relatedness, that's a gross species empathy. Um, And he also feels empathy for culture expands out. And um, the idea that there was a genetic, you know, a new species, speciation, right? That this Mm. is a genetic break. Um, so, uh, it's, first of all, that's not unusual, right? It's, we, we live in a really weird time where there's like, we're the only hominids <laughs> right on earth, but you go back any other time in the, you know, the millions of years we've been on this planet as hominids. And there mm-hmm. were lots of different homo somethings and, mm-hmm. or, you know, maybe we killed everybody else off or, you know, maybe it was disease, <laughs> whatever the reason we're the only one <laughs> that's weird. and. Yeah. I was talking to uh, Dr. Andrew Hessel, who is a a brilliant, he's a good friend of mine. But he was talking about how in Silicon Valley, especially in the early days, uh, people who were more on the spectrum were uh, getting jobs like never before, right? Because the math abilities that came. With, with that, that. We're, were really prized. And he mm. and said, Look, he said, "You nobody talks about this, but you're having people really hyper developed math abilities on mm. the spectrum who, n- under normal circumstances, don't always get the guy or the girl they want. Mm. But now they are at the Maybe. center of this culture mm. and procreating, right? Mm. Like never mixing and procreating at a level that you could, what people don't get is once you're um, moving in that direction, if you start keep moving in that direction, right. In a, in a culture like, so like Valley where those abilities are prized, yeah. it doesn't take long till you have what's a new, what is a new species? Like the yeah. brain, <laughs> nature does this all the time, yeah. right? Like it, meaning like if you have two bird species and one mm. migrates over the mountain, Give it a couple of generations and they're different species it doesn't take really long yes. this was his point and so with m trackers i was one i was thinking about there were a lot of people talk about themselves as empaths and mm. certainly if you spend a lot of time around uh animal welfare animal rights animal rescue it's hard you not meet to be, everybody man. from like animal communicators to, uh, of all you know yeah. of all sort right whether or not they're I, like i don't even know what's <laughs> they're real. Like, like, yeah. let's just say they're, they're, they're hyper tuned to you know animal behavior and have wildly expanded you know senses of empathy towards animals um that has you know perceptual consequences yeah um, which i write about a lot in the small furry Pray. like we know yeah. that there's certain because we co-evolved with wolves and, and evolved with so many animals members of our species who sort of liked animals more than like humans were good for the species Mm. because we, somebody had to, if we were hunting with wolves, somebody had to really get along with the wolves. Mm -hmm. Right. So like you didn't, and, and somebody had to like really like the kids and you like that was important skill set. So there was all kinds of genetic precedents for these ideas. Mm -hmm. I just put them together, but with the trauma as an inciting incident, I always think, because I, I like what Gabor has to say, but like I have certain problems with the, with the culture of trauma right now, because some of the data is just, is just wrong. And, and the mm-hmm. main reason is this, is that 90-some percent of the time, we go from trauma to post-traumatic growth, right? Mm-hmm. Post-traumatic stress disorder is really rare really Mm -hmm. really rare in the instance of drama the vast majority of time it's the hemingway thing the world breaks everyone and afterwards many are stronger at the broken places but -hmm. the data shows it really is many right that's Mm -hmm. what happens to most of us so when i was thinking about i mean we we all know that when you go through trauma um you're broken open you're much more interior is turned up self-awareness is turned up Mm -hmm. you know what i mean so you have so i figured if Something was going to bring on these empathic abilities if this talent was there and was latent at all, um, yep. and I was making up the world, so I get to pick, mm, mm, <laughs> um, mm, right? I want I, that's, That those were the things that were that were thinking uh, that I was thinking about.
2: I love that because it's also there's also this really remarkable thing that goes on with the M trackers and the empathy that they hold as this new species that you start seeing society splinter. On something as noble as empathy, um, which I found really interesting, sort of like this human first movement that evolved in the shadow of this empathy for all movement, and I was like, even with something, and it speaks so much to the, I think, the dialectic of the kind of human condition that even this us versus them versus them versus them went <laughs> back to that that you described. It was just, it, I found that so remarkable. I found that I found
0: it really remarkable. It's also, you know, a lot of this work spills directly out of the work I've done on flow. Yeah. well, <laughs> It shows, the book right. is so but, well I mean, written,
2: and as you-, you know, yeah. But it,
0: flow automatically increases empathy and nature-relatedness, and we know this. And it's not just flow, it's, it's uh, there, uh, there's a group of altered states that do it. In fact, there's a recent paper uh, out of Robert Card Harris's lab in Imperial College in London, right before he moved to uh, 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 UCSD, um, and left imperial college but he's the guy who did all the brain imaging on psychedelics so like all the original psilocybin lsd mdma dmt all the brain imaging stuff he did we uh we collaborate i collaborated with his lab on a flow and psychedelics comparison and contrast study that we ran but he just he was looking at so what nature relatedness which is how wide our sphere of caring extends, right? And, mm. and do we see and perceive and care about the natural, natural world, psychedelics, especially if you do them outside, mm. naturally expand nature relatedness. Now, here's the thing that is also cool. Um, nature related as nature relatedness goes up, environmental activism goes up in lockstep. So mm. they're very empathy for the natural world directly leads to action and mm. um, I had a conversation with Paul Zach, who's sort of the world's leading expert on oxytocin. Mm. He thinks the oxytocin reaction, because mm. oxytocin has been shown very profoundly to lead to action.
2: But, yeah. Like we
0: you know when there's oxytocin, like if you know in um altruism studies if they oh, give you oxytocin nasal spray bro i've had a
2: newborn baby <laughs> and the stuff he's making me do just to preserve his survival is yeah the oxytocin i totally get it yeah that's palpable yeah yeah so
0: there so there's this direct relationship psychedelics seem to uh increase nature relatedness hmm. flow does and uh so does love and kindness meditation hmm. which oh. right is it and, and we what's really cool about this is also like we understand where this happens in the brain, like mm. I can, like I can tell you, mm. like where where in, in the brain empathy exists, how when we our sphere of caring expands, like we sort of know if some idea of what that looks like and and how it's getting really the, the these concepts that were so ephemeral for so long, mm. there's now starting to be some really great neurobiology around them and like so now we can we can talk about things that 10 years ago would have been almost crazy talk but we can talk about the neurobiological relationship between empathy wisdom and intuition that's a real <laughs> thing right it's a thing. Like, like i can even add in consciousness yeah. and i'm still in the realm of science i haven't like i literally yes. you know i haven't yet jumped the shark which is kind of cool so i you know all these questions that are so sort of philosophical, Mm. future-forward philosophical, but they're right around the corner in terms of the world we're living into if we're gonna start solving environmental challenges. Mm. And the reason, you know, I always explain this to people, we touched on it earlier, but why does all this stuff matter? It's a perception problem. So we take Mm. in like 11 million bits of information a second, Mm. you pay attention to 126 bits once. That's how wide your attention span is. So, like 11 million down to 126 bits. Even consciousness, like everything you're aware of, is only yeah. about 2,000 bits. You yeah. pick and choose 126 bits out of 2 out of that 2,000. But you just edit it out. And this is just signals coming into the senses. Forget like most of our internal signals are interior reception. Your heartbeat, your all that stuff, all your internal thoughts. So it's you know. 20 million bits of information a second and we're looking at 126 and the ratio, the negativity bias, because Mm. we're trying to stay alive and the amygdala is hyperreactive is like nine to one. So nine of, of those 126 bits, nine to one is stuff that scares you. Yeah. So, yeah. like, what else gets through is only the stuff Makes that you is inside the fear yeah. that I really love, that really matters to me. Because mm. otherwise, fuck, I'm overloaded. <laughs> and
2: it, and it, and it really
0: <laughs> overloaded. Like, <laughs> yeah. Listen to me talk. Sixty bits of it's right. Sixty bits of RAM. So, if you and I are talking at the same time, we're going back and forth fast. Mm. We're now at 120 bits. Pretty much anybody listening to us is maxed out.
2: Yeah. 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 Yeah, that makes sense one of the interesting things is you're talking about psychedelics in there especially when you're mapping consciousness and i really like the the question i would like to ask for myself is more about the quantum computing fields and the way way we'll be able to map things with quantum computing and potentially understanding your consciousness more but that's another question for another time right now what i really wanted to ask is you mentioned in the book like there's this um because obviously being an em- like the m tracker is an empathy sort of wizard, right? So <laughs> he talks about these, de- you talk about, the- he talks about, and you talk about, I don't know, blah, 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 where does he begin and you end, the drugs of differing decades um, and how there was LSD for an era and then there was uh, MDMA for an era. And we talk about like, yeah, the book goes and unpacks it a little bit further. Now, I found that just because of the the context that the book was referring to it in, it, it was really like sort of, whoa, like, did the drugs influence an era's culture, or because and this was oh, really yeah, yeah so because the Carl, really, the Carl Young no, subconscious really, id call out that man like it was just I was just stuck in there and I was like I gotta ask Stephen yeah, exactly. <laughs> so
0: um so you're asking by the way you just asked a great question and I'm not sure because I here's how I was thinking of it so yeah. there's something um. In psychology, that it, sometimes you'll hear it referred to as uh, the rebel instinct, which is basically like teenagers need to rebel, right? Mm. And we know that. And most people also, you have to rebel. That it's built in, and it's mm. built in because what they want is the young males to get far away from the family as possible before they breed. Right? Like That's <laughs> The whole point is yeah. incest is bad for the <laughs> Go away, rebel need to be free right that's what that is it's about like an argument against instance in you know built into our into our gene pool but one of the things that's been very interesting and i don't know how far back it goes but it certainly starts to show up in culture as far back as like sort of the romantics and really clearly from like the 50s on is that every generation needs to out rebel the previous generation there's a there's a this it's like you know in the x games you got it goes up and up and up and you see yeah. this you know the fashion at is, is the easiest place to start so like in the 50s it was sort of like leather jackets and your hair was slicked back right White yeah. T-shirts. Yeah. But it was a minimalist style and like then yeah. in the 60s it was no no we're gonna go farther we're gonna grow our hair really long, long you know, yeah really wild clothing wavy and, flow-y
2: clothes right yeah. and
0: by the 70s Men are piercing their ears, mm. and the body modification. The punk crowd starts to coming, tattoos start to coming. It becomes a little more permanent, yeah. right? This progresses to these. By the '90s, like you got grunge, and like this is full-scale body modification, scarring, mm. all that stuff. Then you jump into the into the 2000s, and the cutting edge of those movements are now like the biohacker where they're implanting you know hardware into their body you yeah. know bit, turning people and people are going into homemade cyborgs and the point in, in last tango the next rebellion through is people starting to modify genetically human animal hybrids and yeah. this is already going on there are already genetics projects out there i make i joke about it the last time i called it the cat's eye project that's a real thing that's a real, that's a hacker club right now where they're trying to figure out how do you modify human eyes and turn them into cat's eyes, either just as cosmetics or with all the visual capabilities of cat's eyes. Like that's those already real things, right? So if you wanna talk about like humans first versus, you know, empathy for all, this is another one that's also coming is human animal hybrids. And there's gonna be a whole keep humans pure versus you know, we can now, because now, you got mm, to yeah. you
2: know, like, like, like
0: how Z. much Z. giraffe DNA yeah. can I put in my system before I'm no longer human, right? And then do, yes. I, do I need like giraffe human rights? Like these are, question. they seem nonsensical, but these are really close. These are, these questions are from a punk rock people doing this shit perspective. I'm not talking about like mass adoption, but like mm. when it's possible, when it's coming, people are already trying to do this stuff. So it's coming in the next 10 years, 20 years. These are the kinds of questions I was like, okay, this is super interesting. I was thinking about the rebel instinct when I was thinking about psychedelics, because this is well known, like in the, in the, there were mushrooms, sort of some of the plant stuff showed up first. Peyote actually showed up really early and it's a pretty jagged, heavy psychedelic, mm. but, um, in the '60s, people were scared of DMT. They went nowhere near it. They're like, "Okay, this stuff is really, you know, heavy. We're not right. Then we'll do LSD. We'll do mushrooms." But by the, you know, today, DMT is a party drug, mm. right? People like bring DMT pens to parties. It's like, have a martini. Oh, go over here and have a hit of DMT, and I'll watch your body for seven minutes while you float through the noosphere or whatever, and. I, I mean, you're laughing, but I've been at those parties and I like, I don't mm. even go out much. Yeah. I have no social life. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, and I like, so if I've been at those parties, lots of people have been there. They've party. been there. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting because you mentioned also body parts and animals. And I think the cat's eye project is really interesting because there's a certain point in the book where I, got stunned and uh i know i'm going deep into like a real practical example for those that will read it it'll make a bit more sense but i think the topic of conversation that'll emerge from it is interesting nonetheless so the um there's uh when the m tracker lion he meets this polar bear um and he detects it because he's got this hypersensitive sign of vitality his vital signs his signs of signs of life so he can identify it because that's part of his m tracker sort of superpower, right and so he identifies the polar bear as life. However the polar bear actually, and I don't want to ruin it for anybody, but may not potentially be 100% life, but the key thing is why he ends up picking it up as life is because the amount of genetic engineering, the 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 complexity, the the gorgeous engineering <laughs> that went into this particular animals or non-animals eyeballs and the way they were built. And I found that really intriguing as a concept once more because it was like we're already starting to pick, like you said, how much can we sub out of our humanness that is innate to the next thing? And then I was like the eyes, window of a soul, the house of a soul, and then potentially picking, yeah. You don't...
0: We'll get to the robot polar bears in a second. But, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you gotta, yeah. you want to, like, there's a whole, so Japan, Japan mm. um, leads the world in, um, in a couple of categories. First of all, they're the, they're the oldest society. Mm. And they, their their replacement rate, meaning they're kid. They're, they there are no kids. So how to take care of the elderly population has been, like at a crisis level issue yeah, in Japan for, for, long for longer tomorrow. and the robot industry has been in Japan for longer. So yeah. they affective robotics, which is robots that create emotions, can produce empathy, can yeah. care for the elderly, all that stuff. They're the leader of this stuff. And you start yeah. to look at this stuff they're doing in like robo nursing. And you start to like, it start the lot not now not where we are today but you move forward 5 10 years and you start getting real west world style questions about mm. stuff about like cuz we we're, and we they talk about in robotics the uncanny valley right if you make a robot look too much like a human if it's too perfect but not quite right it nauseates us we have a, mm. like a disulsion a yeah literally um, to it and it's called the uncounting valley they can there's a they can get close to human but like they get to a certain point and it makes us nauseous and the question mm. has been well what's setting off this gross out fear response yeah. that's a primal that's by the way that's an that's usually a pheromonal response because nausea usually comes in through odor mm. or, or taste um yeah so uh, it's a it's a it's a really deep old it's weird so it's mm. a really that's an ancient like do you want to talk about the us them detector well, yeah. that's an ancient signal ancient yeah. ancient, ancient signal yeah. um so that, i know i'm not sort of answering your question i was sort of like i'm in, i'm enjoying it now, the
2: unpacking of like where we're going yeah go on yeah yeah the um the interesting thing from there also which i look just i have to i, I don't i don't know how to ask this question without sounding the crazy But man, like, let's just say hypothetically, I imagine (laughs) without even imagining, it's very hard to document a psychedelic trip, right? Like, let's just say you go on a psychedelic trip, you try and document it, you try and understand what's going on with your head. Obviously, the Flow Research Collective, it's work that it's doing with psychedelics helps in a great deal. You trying to understand the biomechanics behind some of this. And there's a better way to ask this question, brother, but
1: when you,
2: like where, where you get off on coming up with new drugs and how they fucking operate, like, how do you even, like, do, oh, you know, uh, I don't even know where to begin with. Like, how did I invent a psychedelic?
0: Fun. Yeah, then how did you I You keep
2: invent inventing psychedelics, like, first, so each taba, and then you went, and then so, even just the audacity to find that, like. Yeah, I don't want to give away too yeah, much. Yeah, I created a cellulite
0: that makes you oh. trip evolution.
2: Man, right? So and then,
0: like- I, well, one, it was this rebel instinct, <laughs> right? Because I was saying, I, well, I had created Siege Tabor yeah. in the, in the uh, first book that allowed you to sort of feel animal consciousness and ride. So I had to, rebel instinct. I knew the next generation would want a stronger drug. Yeah. So I one, I had to do that, and two, I don't know how to. Okay, so <laughs> yeah, I wrote a book a number of years ago called "Stealing Fire" mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that I talked I about psychedelics, and um, so, life so life the psychedelic community has embraced me as one of theirs. Mm. So occasionally, people reach out to me from deep in that community. Like for, I have to tell you, and I'm not like I don't a ton of psychedelics very often but for like years afterwards i would go out into the world people would give me psychedelics they just do, <laughs> i'd go do a book reading and people would come with they say thank you and push something in my head i'd be like that's illegal like what are you doing, <laughs> what are you doing? Um, it's really But i would meet these really um cutting-edge chemists we're yeah. working on so the idea of uh, a drug that radically increases nature relatedness, like we know psychedelics already. So I just like I was, mm. I was like, okay, that's a that n- knob is already in there, and I started to meet really weird folks on the like line between like chemists, shaman, mm. from planet. From Pluto, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. the line was like they were working on drugs, and it's I like it was really hard to tell like what was real and what wasn't because wow. if the stuff they were saying was real, yeah, wow, right? Like that would, like, well, the book, that the I book talk makes about it sound... lightweight compared to stuff that people are. So I was meeting these chemists yeah. who were working on really trippy shit. I also know, and we from just work on technology. There's a 3D. Chem printer that's being developed in Scotland right now. We wrote about it in Futures Faster Than You Think. It was originally created for like the elderly who don't have, want to go to the drugstore to pick up their prescriptions, so couldn't mm. use a three D printer to print prescriptions at home for the elderly. And the the Scottish campus at Edinburgh University decided that you could. It was like, well, then you just make a three D chem just printer that can print make them. anything. And this is, you know like this project is moving along and it's going to show up some like early versions are starting to show up and we'll see this in the 2030s. So all I know is I've met some weird ass chemists who may or may not be telling the truth about, (laughs) but they're willing to do these really crazy experiments. And on the other side, like, the technology is getting realer and realer and realer. Catching the up really. The lunatic, guys, I mean, <laughs> it's <laughs> very, um, right? I mean, like, I don't even know what to call some of the
2: folks fun- <laughs> I don't even um, know that yet. When you, like, I don't you know. know. I
0: mean, you got to, like, I, you gotta, guys, we're like, yeah, yeah, I've gone out, and we've, like, I've ground up jaguar bone with the psychedelic, and you're just like, you did what? the <laughs> <laughs> jaguar bone like, can we, like isn't that an endangered species can we just pull it like this purpose? like what's going on And, and this really like just let me tell man, you what honey. happened like, exactly but like they're like i'm just saying like there are people out there who are doing stuff like that <sighs> And we're going to empower them with 3D chem printers. Yeah, so you don't think this I mean, like maybe I, I was on like, in coming up with new drugs, but like I honestly think I was being fairly conservative compared <laughs> to the stuff that I that I think is out there or coming. Like I gotta tell you, like you I gotta say I, that. I, like really, like the... I, 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 like it's better the farther yeah. i get from stealing fire the less i have to deal with <laughs> <laughs> but like really like the last thing i care about is your ayahuasca trip please don't mm. tell me about your dreams don't tell me about your flow experiences and don't tell me about your ayahuasca trips like i know like draw the line mm. not that they're they're bad it's just that i don't want to hear about them
2: yeah the the incredible thing that i find is because when if I step back for a sec, it's interesting to sort of, like, look at the relationship of the psychedelics and, the, and consciousness. Because as you're describing newer psychedelics and using all the chemistry and the background of the mental mapping that you know from the Flow Research Collective, it really helps sort of the reader, myself, Pick up on mental chemistry and how these like how what potential there is for me as a human being in a storytelling way, which I found a really great way to sort of start exploring. Oh, this part of my mind is prefrontal cortex, oh, this part of my mind is amygdala, Ah, oh, like, and it was just so the story was teaching me, which I love storytelling as a method of learning. It's like the indigenous here in Australia, it's like, it's like their wisdom from like eons, right? Um, time immemorial, we've been learning that way, but. The exploration of psychedelics and consciousness giving us a sort of intermediary step to then go, oh, what really is this architecture of consciousness? And the imagination of psychedelics that you've applied in this book gives us even more of an imagination of what's possible with consciousness, highlighted the sort of potential that psychedelics have for me with regards to supporting consciousness at the risk of going into the stealing fire <laughs> instead of working further yeah, out no, of it I, I, yeah
0: not, i'm not i'm not like psychedelics that likes to give us a very unusual and interesting way to explore consciousness um and certainly like there's the shake the snow globe kind of whole side of this and then there's just like really like Weird questions like there's questions around disassociatives like ketamine and GABA, where it turns out there's this spectrum of consciousness that goes from I'm fully here to I'm totally disassociated, Mm. right? And there's psychedelics that move you along along it, and those kinds of questions and how like how that gets mediated, how our experience like that has there's psychedelic like ketamine give you that experience um and but it has real like profound ramifications for questions around so flow gives you the opposite it gives you the what's called the watchtower effect where you're you're pulled back from your consciousness but you're perched above and you can you have this expanded view mm-hmm. you can see sort of farther into the distance and some of that has to do with prefrontal cortex being dialed back and a, and a couple of impacts but like those kinds of questions are really weird. Like, why is it that like we turn this one neurochemical knob and you're totally disassociated you're a K-hole. Mm-hmm. and like, I can't find you at all until you come down. And then this other one, I've twirled the same knobs just slightly differently. And suddenly you're perched high above your life and you can, you've got perspective and wisdom and you can see. And I'm not saying one is better than the other. It's at all i'm just saying that those are really interesting and weird ass knobs and who knew they existed in the human brain <laughs> exactly and, right like that's all like i like i don't have that so that like there's all the stuff you're talking about which i think yeah that, i mean that's been true since people were started playing with psychedelics in prehistory and you know what i mean like does it i one of the things that i find again and again and again and it's it's why i find that it's interesting and fun as psychedelics can sometimes be in a wow that was an interesting and unusual insight i find that i always end up having the same half a dozen insights Mm. in some variation of and they're good insights and i'm glad i've had them but none of them are ever actionable like Mm. i have experiences in flow Mm. they turn into books they turn into companies they turn into relationships that like they turn into, and I, I have experiences and they don't even really turn into ideas. They turn into like things that I think might be true about the universe, but I can neither confirm nor deny. Mm-hmm. And you'll never get me to talk about this stuff out loud. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, mm-hmm. in, 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 in At least not in public um, mm-hmm. kind of thing. Cause yeah. I can't like, it's just an opinion. I'm just a guy with an opinion. Right. I, I did drugs and now I've got an opinion mm. that that's like, okay, that doesn't make mm. me special. I definitely don't talk about that in public,
2: you mm. know? Yeah. I wanted to, um, dive into this kind of concept that we have of sort of this primary productivity. Maybe I'll give you the, the space to sort of explain what primary productivity is towards the end of the book. You talk about Stanford and PIMS, uh, the Stanford oh, research and some oh, of the stuff and the primary productivity of the human species, because I think, um, even the fact that the the whole book weaves into this concept towards the end, I think is, um, I found that I found myself chewing on that bit for quite a while. Um, yeah. And 40% of the earth's primary productivity being dedicated to human. What is primary productivity, Stephen?
0: So everything on the planet earth lives on sunlight. Yeah. Sunlight is the primary fuel. We either eat, Plants turn sunlight into sugars. So we either eat plants or we eat animals that eat plants. Yeah. How much sunlight gets turned into plant matter is mm. the planet's primary productivity. It's our it's the breadbasket of the earth. So yep. How much food does the earth produce in any given year? We are in the middle of the sixth grade extinction. Species die-off rates are a thousand times greater than ever before in history. and um, you know by the end of the century, 50% of all the large mammals on earth are gonna be gone and, and so forth and so forth. And why is this? And it's because we humans, a single species out of billions consume, and this, these numbers are now out of date because they're 15 years old, but in 15 years ago, we consumed 43% of the planet's primary productivity. So like all the food there is right. one species out of millions, yeah. we stolen all the food. Like, why yeah. are species die-off rates? Without,
2: and they got he, no food.
0: That, that idea, um, Richard Manning uh, is a great uh, nature writer who I quote in the book, and, and he says, he points out, he's like, look, you know, this is why species die-off rates are so great. Mm. Um, we've stolen the food. The rich of, among us, a lot more than everybody else. Oh, is yeah right is his point so like if you know if you uh, are living anywhere near a first world lifestyle um you know and i'm pointing a finger directly at myself on this one you know what i mean like
2: yeah uh, uh it's
0: a it's it's an issue and but like i you know i that that the, the notion of primary productivity first of all Stuart Prim, who's one of the guys, there did two efforts to calculate the primary productivity. Stuart Prim's one um, and the other came out of Stanford. Um, they're, he's an awesome researcher. So I've known his work for a while and it, it's, it's been really impactful. But I always thought that like, I found personally in, in you know years of trying to communicate about environmental issues and animal rights issues and things like that with, with the public with varying degrees of failure and success. Mm. Um, I was found like if you're an animal if you're an animal lover or mm. nature lover and I start talking about species die off you light up you it's you I'm I'm preaching to sure the choir but if you're not if you're right in the humans first category at any level mm. right yeah. you know, it it doesn't, it doesn't none of this registers and I got I have to tell you this is really funny but I started to notice this like. Mm. When Peter and I, Peter and myself were writing Abundance, I was at Singularity University and yeah. we were doing, we we were doing the research tonight. this was the second class at Singularity University, right? Mm. And the people in that class that come from all over the world, they were brilliant. They were being taught by like visionary Silicon Valley mm. folks and I had just written a small furry prayer and I think it was best known in the world. Like maybe these people knew some of my writing, whatever, but like I was the animal side, I was the dog guy. You know what I mean? (laughs) It was writing a book with Peter to a lot of these people because they didn't know, like they hadn't read West of Jesus. They weren't a surfer. They were like, like, (laughs) nobody read my first novel. Like I was a tech writer and a science writer and like the dog guy, right? And I would have these conversations with these brilliant minds about like animal rights issues and like they would just they were they they weren't they were super
2: animated animated. on any other
0: conversation but then you'd start talking about animals or plants and it like it like they just fade to black like they just went away Mm. and um it was those kinds of things that i was looking at i was like well how do you that's the divide I want to cross because, like yeah. those are the people who have the power, if they could start seeing, because they were saying all the right things, I just knew they weren't. Like they didn't see, like they literally weren't processing the information, and so like yeah. they weren't, wasn't coming in. Yeah. And you know, it's um, it's odd. I like, I just think about the first time I went uh something i learned from my wife which is like the first time i was hiking, my wife and like you know we live in the desert and we're hiking spider webs everywhere in the yeah. desert which, like joy would go out of her way to walk around the spider webs and it's hard to do especially yeah. dogs, funny dogs and she was like look those are hard to make there's a lot of energy that goes that spider puts a lot of time and effort mm-hmm. and energy into the way and i went Oh, like that was a level of empathy for all that no. I was like, oh, that goes okay. And now I do that. I just, mm. uh, I just. Have you ever read uh, Braiding Sweetgrass? Mm. Do you know? Have you read the book Braiding Sweetgrass? No, no but I've heard about it. So it's it's just a beautiful. She's a botanist and a uh, a Native American. And a scientist, and she brings the two theories together, but there's a, she takes empathy for all these ideas so much. Like, I thought I took them as far, you know what I mean, as you sort of push on them. And then I read Brady Sweetgrass, she's got a chapter in there where she talks about the world from the perspective of rain. And rain consciousness,
2: oh. and I mean,
0: like I never stopped to
2: consider. Oh, man, like, you gotta love so indigenous
0: wisdom. water have consciousness, or is it the entire rain cloud? And this is, by the way, what I liked about it is. My wife and I have conversations because plant consciousness and plant neuroscience is a real field, yeah, right?
2: people are studying. Plants process
0: right. the same neurochemicals we do. They yeah. exhibit empathy, right? They feel the altruism. They all kinds of they process information in real time with pheromones and like there's a really interesting argument for plant consciousness. I don't know where I fall on it, but the yeah. argument is very interesting. And plant neuroscience is a huge burgeoning tool. Mm super amazing field and you know my wife and i will we'll have conversations like okay plants are consciousness are conscious is it like is the entire aspen grove conscious or is an individual
2: tree mm. conscious?
0: is it the tree or the branch or the leaf like at what level of yeah. scale does the plant become conscious if you're dealing with we i live in in northern nevada in the high desert we live in a in a, in a sea of, of uh, sage, and yeah. like, is it the, the they talk about the sage for a sea? Well, is the entire sea? It's uh, like, is it the individual?
2: Or, plant? Yeah. What where level does the is individual? God, way, and where, well, where, where does it start? These are
0: not writing? totally like these are a little sci-fi, but just a little and. um, like some mm. of the questions are, start to get real, right? Like, mm. um, at, it, consciousness may be the wrong word, um, mm. but uh, it, anyways. I, I think these are one. I love the I love the thinking in and around this stuff. Yeah. Even Like the reason I mentioned Rob Robin's book is, um, it's wonderful to start seeing people take it farther. Or Richard mm. Powers' book, The Overstory, where he, you know, tells the his book the first hundred ten pages are from the perspective of the forest, <laughs> which I, I don't think Amy's ever done before wow. you know, in, in literature. And it's mind blowing. It's a great book, um but I, like I'm, you're really starting to see these ideas enter into literature and to consciousness um, at a much, you know what I mean. This is not taking
2: root. Yeah, literally. Well, I, you know, I
0: it bummed me out in a sense, like avatar can't be the end all be all ultimate environmental statement to come mm. out of side. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's fine,
1: uh-huh. but
0: like it's sort of beginner level thinking, right? Like yeah. we did that in the Lorax. Mm. I love the Lorax. It changed my <laughs> life, but I read it when I was four, right? Yeah. But it, I mean, it totally changed we my life. We need to
2: evolve continually. Yeah.
0: I'm just yeah. saying that like there are new questions out there.
2: I love these questions. I want to make sure that I ask this particular quenching, quenching, quench myself with a question, quenching, um, <laughs> this question of you today. Um, there's this interesting piece about the future, especially what it brings into light when we were looking at it in the book. Um, and it does hearken a lot back to flow, but the, Sorry, did
0: the, you, did the in a sentence. that was
2: yeah. impressive.
0: <laughs> play for it, play for it.
2: Sacred the sacred commodity. Um, that is attention. Yeah. The sacred commodity that is attention because it's forever being vied for, even looking at the likes of Z and Sir Richard in the book, the amount the work that they're doing to map the mind, and you know, that's not too dissimilar to, I guess, all the social media giants that are living out there in the world right now um but nonetheless the the scale at which they're operating in the book is futuristic so the the key thing and there was this it was just written in like really beautiful short succinct way in the book but so poetically put that the takeaway for me was like the trigger like just understanding your triggers for where you zip off and zip back in zip off and zip back in that attention management is so important and I think especially at this juncture in this conversation, we've touched on such big topics. And like you said, there are certain people where you're tuning in and you're having this important conversation, but it's just, the, the trigger's just not, like it's just not being picked up on the other side. And I think that attention management and knowing what I know, having followed your work for quite a while, how important it is to actually devote yourself. Well, this yourself wasn't, this this those story. folks, it wasn't <laughs>
0: attention management. It was literally empathy sphere of caring stuff. Like mm. I crossed outside. So the, it doesn't matter what I say. They literally, it's a, it's a cognitive bias. They literally, it, there's mm. not processing it. It wasn't, it, it, they were paying plenty of attention to me, but um, it's a sphere of caring thing. But it does remind me. So, the, the third way to train up empathy is loving kindness meditation, mm. right? Um, and the, the work on that, you know, it's Tibetan, it's Tibetan practice originally, it's Tibetan Buddhist practice, but the, it's what uh, the work that Richie Davidson has done at the University of Wisconsin, my alma mater, Go Badgers, um, on loving kindness meditation is sort of astounding in terms of how it changes the brain mm. and the reason I'm coming off what you said and mentioning it again is one, and it's known to expand empathy, but the thing that it does, that is real, first of all, it trains down cognitive bias. So, um, and uh, it's very, it's very effective uh, at that. Uh, but interestingly, it's, it makes our automatic behavior, our habits, our triggers, what you just said to come off yeah. to be really visible. And i been meditating and studying meditation for 30 years i've used hmm. every different kind of system of yeah we right? talked All about this it. in previous episodes and i literally i stayed away from loving kindness meditation kindness meditation i was like dude this is like you're praying for people like i can't like, I don't, <laughs> like it, it feels weird. like i don't like
2: fluffy dice and, off my dashboard <laughs> and finally, it was, I, I, finally i was
0: like i was conf- i was looking at uh uh richard david's data um I was doing an interview on our on the flow research collective radio uh with dan goldman who worked with Richard. and so i was looking really looking at the data on compassion meditation yeah um and it's wild like i'll give you i'll give you the weirdest one so one of the reasons we age is because we have something called a telomere they're caps on our chromosomes right Mm. and as the gene code reproduces these caps on the chromosomes get shorter and shorter and shorter, mm-hmm. right? And they start to fray. So, how do we repair telomeres is a big field in anti aging. Massive
2: question at the moment. Yeah.
0: Right. So, somebody, I didn't like, uh, I'm going to forget where they did the study. I have it written down. The study was, we want to see, like, there was all the, meditation is good for this and good for this and good for this. Mm -hmm. And actually it's got physiological, not just psychological benefits. So somebody was like, okay, let's look at aging. And they Mm -hmm. did a comparison study. They looked at telomere length after six weeks of meditation and they compared loving kindness meditation to focus meditation, focus on your Mm -hmm. breath meditation. And it turned out six weeks of loving kindness meditation, actually uh, your telomeres grow longer. It repairs your telomeres. And it, or it halts telomere attrition whereas focused meditation does not so like it's really like it, but i mean if you look at richard davidson nice. so like the part of your brain that does empathy is the temporal parietal junction it's right mm-hmm. here um, and yeah. it does a lot of stuff it does empathy but it also does out-of-body experiences when you have an out-of-body mm-hmm. experience why is that it's because empathy is about perspective so, is not a body experience. Not a body experience, <laughs> physical perspective changes, right? Yeah, empathy, yeah, yeah. Your cognitive perspective changes. And it mm. turns out the same part of the brain handles both, which makes some sense when you actually think about it, but is really, really weird, right? Yeah. So this is why, you know, when they do all, all that, like there's, there's a whole bunch of, uh, there's a lab in Switzerland that can produce out-of-body experiences now, and it's all mm-hmm. by messing with the temporal parietal junction mm-hmm. in, in different ways. Um, in fact, you can trick it in VR and yeah. have doppelganger experiences, which is another, doppelganger is a, another altered state phenomenon where you see, instead of leaving your body and hovering above yourself, you project your physical body yeah. into space so you see a copy of yourself and in certain mystical traditions including uh kabbalistic judaism you can ask your doppelganger questions and then use your doppelganger as like oh, a, a yeah so that there was a great study done at the at jerusalem university by um my friend shahar Arzi, is Arz, a neuroscientist who teamed up with Moshe Adel, one of the world's leading experts on kabbalah mm. and it, because there's this really complicated Kabbalistic practice that is supposed to produce the doppelganger effect. And uh Shahar had come out of the lab in Switzerland where they had created out-of-body experiences.
2: Just created this yeah, like, yeah.
0: oh wow, this has got to be the same phenomenon. Yeah. So let's try to reproduce it. And they did. And so they've got neural imaging work, fMRI work on what goes on in the brain wow. while you're having a doppelganger, while you're literally seeing yourself, Jesus. you know, which is, yeah. inc- is incredible. Um our ability to, it's what's, this, you know, this is some of the work that informs the novels, of course, but it's, um, it's just amazing to me because I remember—I so remember my early conversations with Dr. Andrew Newberg, who sort of got me into the science of this work back in the late 90s and early thousands. And I remember having conversations like, do you think we'll ever answer these questions or this question? Mm-hmm. I was just a young, like, I was just, I must have been like yeah. the most annoying girl. <laughs> just like endless questions i remember like at one point this was a totally different thing but tatricia wright who's a mccarthy genius award-winning privatologist got trapped in a car with me for three. <laughs> got trapped she's her. become a very good friend of mine but she loves to tell this story because she had never met before and i was like how often do you get access to a macarthur winning genius award yeah. private <laughs> college? and for three hours i just peppered her with question after question after question uh, I uh, stop. Uh, 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 oh man uh,
2: I love that. but i
0: remember asking it the newberg i was like do you think we'll ever you know solve some of these things <laughs> i was even just talking about simple flow yeah. stuff i wasn't talking about like you think we're going to decode the doppelganger mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's crazy how far this field has come,
2: come in and such far, a short right? amount of time as yeah. well like the, yeah it's been phenomenal ah oh, Stephen, it's been phenomenal having you again as <laughs> always brother man it is honestly fun talking
0: to you i don't know if anybody listening is likes this conversation at all but it's always fun to have
2: to talk to you oh man it's the yeah they, they they're very they're super well received so it means the world to me to enjoy these conversations with you and share them with the world and specifically yeah, just especially the, these last two on the, the, the fiction writings, like uh, like I said at the beginning, just the, the ability of scope that it gives the mind to grow into, like I think it's, I'm butchering an Einstein quote, but the power of how important imagination really is. And I think especially feeling into my truth in this time, like just where the world's at, there's a lot of action that needs to be taken. And I think we need to get imaginative about what's really possible rather than sort of being stuck in the boxes of what's being fed to us in terms of what you know is the kind of mainstream norm at the moment and this book both books especially sort of help us expand potentially what's possible for us as a species when we're our most evolved self and you know how much inspired evolution (laughs) means to me so thank you so much for writing the books i'll put links to the books in the show notes below so if you're interested in a book, um, I highly, highly give it a recommend. There's this interesting point in the book where Confucius is standing right between Tony Robbins and Jack Canfield and uh, Deepak Chopra gets shot in the head right between the eyes and uh, Eckhart Tolle cops a bullet to the gut as well. So if you want to understand more about what the fuck I just said, please do check out the book. You are the, that is so
0: funny that you're the first person. That you're, so a couple other people have <laughs> slyly mentioned that to me. in <laughs> fascinating. You sort of went to town on the self help (laughs) industry. And I'm like, I don't don't know what you're
2: talking about. (laughs) But, um, it does it with a lot of grace. So go figure. So please check out the book. Um and Steven, man, thank you so much again for being here. sharing yourself with us today. And I know it's not just today, like you said, it's three hour card ride car rides where you're peppering people with questions that they don't want to be asked over a whole lifetime's worth of experience, all the work you put into, yeah, like the dogs, the care, the heart, even just all the work that you dedicate to us helping understand our mind and our neurology and our human optimal performance better. Man, it is always such a pleasure. Thank you so much
0: was a lot of words i don't have any idea what you just said but it sounded really good thank you It was a pleasure hanging out with you once again
2: (laughs) much love thank you so much for tuning into this amazing episode of the inspired evolution without you the inspired evolution tribe this podcast would not be what it is today thank you so much for your love and your support thank you so much for being so inspired to evolve It's truly inspiring. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Inspired Evolution on YouTube, the home of the Inspired Evolution's video podcast. We release inspiring conversations such as this every week, along with guided meditations and empowering insights all designed to help you grow and evolve. Honestly, your subscription on YouTube to the channel helps us out a great deal.